I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 17. We're going through the, uh, the Gospel of John chapter by chapter. And we have worked our way into chapter 17. And we'll try to cover that tonight. Um, we'll make mention of the fact and remind you that uh, John's Gospel was the last of the four that were written. The other three are um, called synoptic Gospels, meaning they cover the, pretty much the same thing, same events, same, uh, same timeline. John's is totally different. John was written uh, uh, in 92, 95 A.D., something like that. Uh, John was most probably in his 90s at the time. Um, and um, uh, this, uh, you can do the math, this uh, account of Jesus' uh, ministry was about 60, 65, 60 to 65 years, uh, roughly, um, after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. The, uh, the Gospel of John is a, is a um, much more common language gospel than any of the others. John is just t- simply telling a story about the man named Jesus who was the Son of God that was his friend. And, uh, and, and in some ways, everything about the Gospel of John gets us to chapter 17. Uh, it's certainly not the last chapter in the, in the Gospel account. It's not the last thing that he writes, but in some ways it's the most important. It's the, uh, um, well, there's just not another chapter in the Bible like John 17. It shows us Jesus at prayer. Now there were uh, there were a lot of things that um, that the Bible tells us about Jesus praying. For example, it tells us that um, uh, when Jesus was baptized of, of uh, uh, in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and the Holy Ghost came upon him, he was praying. Luke three, verse twenty one, twenty two, somewhere around there, I think. Uh, the Bible tells us that immediately after he was baptized by the Holy Ghost, uh, he went into the wilderness and he spent forty days fasting and praying. It tells us also that um, uh, that when he picked his 12 disciples, he spent all night in prayer in the mountain. It tells us that he got up early in the morning to pray. It tells us over and over again that Jesus prayed. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, uh, Luke's account tells us specifically that when Jesus gave up his spirit and, and died on the cross, he was praying. Um, but this is the most information we have about any any prayer that Jesus prayed. There are uh, There's uh, very little information. Uh, about uh, the things that Jesus prayed about, uh, or we may have some subject matter, but not uh, not details. One thing that we do know about Jesus in prayer is uh, what most of the church world recognizes and calls the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so forth. Uh, I don't know why that's called the Lord's Prayer, because it doesn't say Jesus prayed that way. It said he told his disciples to pray that way. In my opinion, it ought to be called the disciples' prayer. But John 17 is really the Lord's Prayer. Because after uh, chapter 16, uh, which really starts in chapter 13, we see uh, uh, in the 13th chapter, we see Jesus kneeling, girding himself and kneeling before the uh, disciples to wash their feet. Uh, he's um, operating as uh, our high priest, as the mediator of mankind, as he does that to prepare them for the work that he's going to do. And then he tells them in chapter 14, 15 and 16, all the things that are necessary to console them because he's going away. He's trying to bring them comfort in telling them what belongs to them. He's telling them about the Holy Ghost, about what will happen after he's gone and how it's better for him, that they're better for them, for him to go away and, uh, and so forth. And as he finishes all those consoling words, then it says in chapter 17, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and prayed. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. Now, the, the first thing that he makes mention of, and, and remember, we've uh, covered this uh, time and time and time again, Jesus keeps talking about going to the Father. He talked to the Jews about going to the Father, and they didn't know what that meant. We made this uh, statement before. I, I'm, I think we made it last week. We may have made it before. Uh, heaven is not part of Jewish theology. The Jews didn't understand a heavenly kingdom. Because everything that they had um, experience with was uh, the promises that God made Abraham here on the earth. And so even today, you talk to the Jews about heaven, they're lost. I mean, they're, they're clueless. There are a lot of scriptures in the Bible that talk about uh, uh, Jesus in heaven, the Messiah in heaven and so forth, but they completely miss them. Like, for example, um, uh, in the Psalms, David said, uh, as inspired by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Jesus quoted that, talking to the Jews, and said, how is it then that David said, the Lord said unto my Lord? Because they were all stuck on this God is one type thing. Well, 
they missed over and over again, they missed the scriptures that had to do with the heavenly kingdom. Jesus kept saying, my kingdom's not of this earth. Well, that said to the Jews, at least the Jewish leaders, then you can't be the Messiah because the Messiah has a heavenly, has an earthly kingdom, not a heavenly kingdom. They didn't know what that was about. Now Jesus says, first and foremost, Father, the hour has come. Now I want you to realize the import of this. Jesus knows exactly what he was sent to the earth for. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Everything he prays about here in this prayer, he knows is the will of God for him to have. He knows he will receive. Yet he gave us uh, a detailed account. John gave us a detailed account of what Jesus said. Jesus could very easily have prayed these things silently. But the fact that he prayed these things out loud and that the Holy Ghost gives us a record of them indicates to me that God wants us to know what's, what's, what this is about. So he says, Father, the hour has come, the most important hour since hours began being numbered. He says, the hour has come. Now, what about this hour? What is this hour? I want you to notice something. Keep it, something in mind, you, and uh, refer back to it uh, throughout this prayer. Jesus never prays one thing about the cross. Not one thing. He knows the suffering he's going to endure. He knows what's going to happen when he's betrayed. He knows the stripes he's going to take on his back. All of these things were prophesied. He knows he has to fulfill the prophecies. The hour has come. The hour that has come is the fulfilling of many, many, many prophecies in a very, very short period of time. So he knows all the suffering. He knows all the pain. He knows all the other stuff about it that we look at and we cringe over, and at least I do, and, uh, and that type of stuff. Jesus doesn't look to that. He's talking about the hour being come that he is glorified, meaning that he is raised from the dead. Jesus had an interesting way of looking at affliction and trouble. I think it's good for us to adopt that or at least try to develop ourselves so that we can too. Jesus didn't look at trouble as anything in and of itself. He looked at it as the means whereby the glory of God is manifested. I wonder if that has anything to do with James saying by the Holy Ghost, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. In other words, the time of trouble is nothing in and of itself. It's a time for us to rejoice knowing the glory of God will rest upon us to deliver us from whatever the trouble is. So Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. First thing he says, glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. I want you to notice something. Jesus was not shy about asking God for something that he knew that he wanted and something that he came to, to accomplish and something that he came to receive. He's talking about resurrection glory here. He's not talking about glorifying him on the cross. You look at most commentaries and they'll talk about Jesus asking, you know, this is Jesus asking for strength on the cross and so on and so forth. He didn't. Now, the other gospel accounts tell us that when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is in chapter 18 of John, that he prays and spends time praying and he's very sorrowful, he's anguished, and he sweats great drops of blood, and an angel comes and strengthens him. I have no doubt that that's strength for the cross, but that's not what he's praying for here before his disciples. Because this prayer in John chapter 17 is Jesus praying as our high priest. He prays an eternal prayer once and for all. An eternal prayer is our high priest. So he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that thy son may also glorify thee. Notice that Jesus asking for the glory that he came to achieve, the glory that's part of God's redemptive plan from the beginning, the glory that makes it, will make him the first begotten from the dead, meaning not physical death but spiritual death. He wasn't the first one born again from physical death. Lazarus has already been raised from physical death as well as many others before him. But he will be the first begotten from the spiritually dead. That's the glory that will be given unto him. But he says he wants that glory for the purpose of glorifying the Father. Notice how Jesus' purpose and God's purposes are always directly connected and tied together. They're inseparable. I wonder if that's a signal for us that that's what ours ought to be. I wonder if it would make a difference in us knowing what to pray and how to get our prayers answered if it was. Must be. James says you have you ask and you have not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it on your own lust. In other words, if your purposes are crossed at cross purposes with God, there's no way we'd expect to get an answer. That's why our prayer should be based on the word. Because God's word is always a revelation of his purpose. So he says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. 
as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Now, this scripture causes a lot of problems for many people because they look back to the miracles of Jesus. They look back to his authority over sin, sin and sickness and disease and so forth here on the earth. And they think that's the power that he's talking about being given to him. But that's not what he's speaking of. It's talking about since we know that it, the end result is eternal life. Notice the last part of the verse that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given it. So the power that he has over all flesh has something to do with eternal life. So what power did Jesus have over all flesh in order to bring eternal life to mankind? The power given to him over all flesh means you've made me the representative of all mankind that I might give eternal life to as many as you have given me. Now, again, commentators, most commentators, at least the ones I've been able to uh, to identify and ascertain, talk about this uh, this last part of the verse to as many as thou hast given me as talking about God's election, God picking and choosing and uh, predestination and foreordained um, those who should be saved and so on and so forth. But we don't see that in Scripture. What we see throughout the ministry of Jesus is all those that were given him were those that had ears to hear. For example, we know that the disciples, the 12, left everything they had when they heard Jesus say, come follow me. They left everything they had and they followed him, right? But what about the rich young ruler? Both Mark and Luke tell us about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and and asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The Bible says Jesus looked on him and loved him. Now, he told him what to do. He said, go sell what you have and give to the poor that you may have treasure in heaven. The problem that he had, the one thing that he lacked was that he didn't have treasure in heaven. He had treasure on the earth. He was rich toward himself, but he wasn't rich toward others. You find that a lot with rich people here on the earth. They'll do a lot for themselves, but not much for, for anybody else. So he said, one thing that you lack is treasure in heaven, so go sell what you have so that you'll have treasure in heaven. The rich young ruler went away sad, very grieved, because the Bible says he had great possessions. Let me ask you a question. Why would Jesus love the guy? And by the way, he loved him when he was rich. That's a surprise for a lot of church people. But he loved him while he was rich. Why would Jesus love somebody that God hadn't given him. That doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, that's almost like God taunting him. Oh, here's somebody that you love. And he asked, he said to the rich young ruler, same thing he said to Peter and John, come follow me. Sell what you have, give to the poor, that you may have treasure in heaven, come follow me. He offered him a chance to be part of his group. It's almost like God would taunt him. Well, here's somebody you love, but he's not yours. Now, what makes somebody his, what makes the difference between somebody that has God has given him and somebody that has not been given him is the person choosing to have ears to hear. The thing that the disciples have in common is not that God picked them first. Every person had the choice. Every person had the opportunity to accept what Jesus was saying. The thing that they had in common was they all chose to have ears to hear. And that's what it means to be given of God. It means to have ears to hear, to choose to have ears to hear. And that has more to do with the individual than it has to do with God. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, made him a representative of all mankind, in other words, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Who does eternal life belong to? Those who have ears to hear. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, folks, I want you to understand something where it says this is life eternal. This is what eternal life is. It identifies and defines what eternal life is. The definition of eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus Christ. That's the definition. But this verse is saying a lot more than just a definition. Because notice Jesus says, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God. That means there aren't any other true gods. That means that means the, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who the Bible defines as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Allah or any other God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one that Jesus said was his father, and he said he's the only true God. Jesus is refuting once and for all in front of the disciples in this special prayer 
that we have revealed to us by an eyewitness, John, 60, some 60 years later. And, and there's, and, and let me, let me take a side journey here for just a minute. If you look at first John, the letter, the first, particularly the first letter that John wrote to the church, you can see exactly the themes that are identified in John chapter 17. It's a rewrite of John chapter 17. First John is a rewrite of John 17 because he talks about fellowship. He talks about being one with the Father. He talks about overcoming the world because of who we are in Christ and so forth. These are things I believe, my personal opinion. I believe that the reason that the Holy Ghost had John write this so late in his life is because John has been meditating on these things, remembering by the Holy Ghost all the things that Jesus said in that last prayer before they ever left to go out into the Garden of Gethsemane. That takes place in John chapter 18, as I said before. The last thing that Jesus prayed, the most detailed, the most precise prayer that Jesus ever, that we have record of at least, that Jesus ever prayed in front of them. He's been meditating on these things and living on these truths for those 60 years. And it's what made him the witness that he was that his enemies couldn't kill. So the first thing that he says here, he says, this is eternal life. This is what it is, is to know thee, the only true God. And notice what Jesus calls himself and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is the only place that Jesus calls himself Jesus Christ. It's the only place in Scripture where Jesus identifies himself in this way. And what is he doing? He's saying, number one, God is the only true God. There aren't any others. And there's only one way, and that's me. Now, he's not saying this to the disciples. He's praying this before the Father. You know, I was thinking about this, meditating on this this afternoon. You may not know this, but Muslims are are commanded in the Quran to believe the words of Jesus. Most of them don't know that. But the Quran in, uh, instructs Muslims to believe the words of Jesus. That's a problem where it comes to this verse. Because Jesus is identifying his father as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying he's the only true God, which means Allah cannot be. So if Jesus is the Christ, if he's the only way to God, that means Muhammad cannot be the way. So if they obey Muhammad, they have to reject Allah and Muhammad. To accept the truth, they have to reject what uh, the one that the Quran tells is the way to God. By his own instruction. That's quite a dilemma, isn't it? Well, the answer to why that is is very simple. Muhammad was an uneducated man. He didn't know what was in the Bible. He's just trying to curry favor among the Christians in the beginning, Christians and the Jews. And so he said, oh, yeah, we believe in the Bible. The Bible's all, all good. Kind of like what the Mormons say now. Oh, we believe in the Bible. We just believe in more. Well, if you believe in the Bible, there is no more to believe in. Okay, and this is life eternal, that thou may, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, Father, glorify me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now I want you to notice something. It's as if Jesus says, first and foremost, the hour has come, glorify me so that I might glorify you, and then spends three and a half verses explaining why God should glorify him, and then closes in verse 5, praying for himself again, glorify me because I've finished the work. And glorify, here's the, what he means by glorifying him. Glorify me with the, the glory I had before the world was. Now, what was that? Remember John 1, 1, where we started. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. So what he's talking about is that same heavenly power and glory that Jesus laid aside before he came to the earth. He said, give that back to me. Now, when is he talking about? When is he talking about glorifying the father? Now we could make an argument that Jesus glorified the father on the cross. Right? I mean, he finished the work that he was sent to do. But the glorifying the Father he's talking about is resurrection glory, not cross glory. 
John chapter 17 is divided into three sections. The first section is verses 1 through 5 where Jesus prays for himself. The second section is verses 6 through 19 where Jesus prays for his disciples. And then the third section is verses 20 through 26 where Jesus prays for you and me. Here's Jesus praying for himself. Again, I'm starting in verse 1. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son may also glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now he starts praying for the disciples. Notice he says in verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Can I ask you a question? Are the only ones that believed in Jesus were the 12? What about the 70? Remember Jesus sent out the 70 in Luke chapter 10. He told them to do the same works that he was doing, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, and so forth. And they came back and said, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. Didn't they believe too? Well, then the men that believed, the men that he manifested the name of the Father before, can't just be the twelve. Can it? That's all that's present. I'm not saying anybody else is there. But he's got to be talking about more than just the twelve in the room. Or else he's played favorites. No, he's talking about everybody that's believed on him that's still present on the earth. I have manifested thy name under the men which thou gavest me out of the world. In other words, those that had ears to hear. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me. How did he do that? By opening their heart to be willing to receive. But that was their choice. God just gave them the opportunity. And notice he says the last thing in verse 6, he says, and they have kept thy word. Now, what does that mean? That means they chose to follow me. It means they chose to put what they heard about me and about being sent by you first and foremost in their lives. The 70 left their jobs just as much as the 12 did, folks. And Jesus didn't have to go hunt for 70 more. They were all there. Most Bible scholars agree that Jesus had a group of anywhere from uh, 100 to 150 people following him at just about any given time. That's probably not the case in Jerusalem. They've probably gone to their own uh, Passover feasts and stuff like that so that only the 12 were there. But Jesus had a good crowd that followed him that he had to take care of and that he was responsible for almost all the time. Verse 7. Now they have known that thou all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about not only the things that he's been given on the earth, like authority over sickness and disease. Those things were certainly obvious. They believe those. But also the things that he said were to be given him of the Father. Jesus talked a lot about the things of his kingdom to come. For I have given unto them the words. How'd they know? Because of the things he said. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them. And have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I want you to notice how often Jesus says that. How important it is for him, to him, that other people, everybody else knows, I'm sent from the Father. And what the Jews rejected was that Jesus was sent from the Father. That's why the Bible says, and he came unto his own and they received him not. They refused to receive, they they saw the miracles, they couldn't argue those. They even asked him, where'd you get the power to do this stuff? What they rejected is that he was sent from God. Because if he was sent from God, then they have to receive him as the Messiah. And they refused to accept that. Even though he proved it, he proved it through Old Testament scriptures. He proved it through the fulfillment of prophecy. He proved it over and over again through the works. He wound up just saying, if you don't believe in me, at least believe the works. And they refused. Well, what did they refuse? They refused to believe that all these things proved that he was sent from the Father. That's what they refused. And that's what seems to be first and foremost in Jesus' mind. 
Over and over again, he talks about they believe, they, the disciples, the ones that have followed me here on the earth, they believe that I came from you. That's what Jesus is interested in. Jesus is not standing around saying, and they believe that I'm the one. They believe that I'm the Messiah. That's not his prayer. His prayer is they believe that I came from you because his purpose, his one and only purpose, was not to be the Messiah, but his purpose was to glorify the Father. Now, certainly as the Messiah, he did that. And that was the work that God had given him to do. But his purpose was to show that he came from the Father. Everything Jesus did pointed back to the Father. And that's what everybody rejected. That's what people reject now, folks. How many times do we hear that Jesus was a good man and he taught good things and he was a a, a great teacher and, and a, a teacher of morality? There's all kinds of different phrases that the world uses. But if you admit that he came from God then you got to accept what he said about being the way to God. And that's where the world draws the line. Verse 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world. Please notice this. Jesus is making the distinction between himself, between his disciples and the world. Now, this is another proof that he's praying as the high priest. Because stop and think about this. On the cross, Jesus did pray for the world. As he's hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But look at the difference between Jesus praying for the world as a perfect man and Jesus praying for his disciples as our high priest. That's the difference here. He said, I pray not for the world. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Who is it that belong to God? Well, the Jews belong to God originally. Why? Because they accepted the word that God spoke to Abraham. Who is he talking about now that belong to God? The ones that accepted the word that came from Jesus. Those are the ones that God has given him. The ones that had ears to hear. The words that God sent him to speak. And all are all mine are thine and thine are mine and I am glorified in them. Now he's making a case. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but he's making a case. He hasn't really started praying for him yet. It starts in verse 6, but he hasn't started praying and really asking anything for him yet. He's about to, but up to this point, he's basically presenting them to the Father. He's saying, I've manifested myself unto them. They've heard your words. They've kept your words. They believe that I was sent from you and so forth. Now, why is that? Exodus 28, verse 29, I believe it is, speaking of the Old Testament, said, And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel on the breastplate of judgment. When he comes before the Lord. Now, why is that? So that God would remember Israel. God would remember those that he had a covenant with. Now, Aaron, who is the high priest of the old covenant, Jesus is fulfilling that high priest type that Aaron, that uh, Aaron stood in the office of. Jesus fulfilling that type as the real, true high priest now carries us carries his disciples in on his heart. So his first statements when he begins to pray is to make presentation to the father of his apostles, the 11. He said, and I am, verse 11, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Please notice what God called, what uh, Jesus calls God throughout this thing. In verse 1 and verse 5, he calls him Father. In verse 11, he calls him Holy Father. In verse 25, he calls him Righteous Father. So he says, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we are. Now, what does he mean, I come to thee? Is he talking about I'm coming to you in prayer? Or is he talking about, I'm coming to you after the cross? I think both. But there's a verse of scripture that kind of gives us a hint about this. First Peter chapter one, verse five says, uh, talking about the believers who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So when God, uh, when Jesus is asking his father, keep them, he's talking about something that happens when we are born again. He's talking about something that happens when we receive the divine nature. 
So in that context, let's read verse 11 again. He said, and now I'm no more in the world. They're going to need something because I'm not here with them anymore. But these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. What's he talking about? He's talking about salvation, the new birth, union with with God through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, will produce the same benefits, the same results, the same protection that Jesus provided them while he was here on the earth. So he says, keep them. Here's the first thing you really ask for, for them. Verse 11, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we. Well, there's another hint. The being kept is being one with God the Father. Now, what kind of one does he mean? What kind of union is he talking about? What kind of joining together with the Father is he talking about? He's talking about the same union, the same relationship, the same fellowship that he had with God the Father himself. Now, remember what Jesus said. He stood before Lazarus' tomb and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me because you hear me always. I didn't say this for your benefit. I said this for the benefit of those that are standing by. I know you always hear me. Why? Because of his relationship. In the same way, Jesus is praying this prayer with that same relationship, knowing full well that everything he's asking for, he's going to get. No question about it. He's not talking anything over with God. He's saying the hour has come. It's time now. He's just going through the fulfillment of that which was God's plan from the beginning. He knows he's praying the right things that God wants him to ask for. But he's got to do the praying in order for it to happen. Remember Jesus said about the Holy Ghost, he said, it's better for you if I go away. Because if I don't go away, the comforter can't come. Well, how's he going to come? He said, I'll pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter. In other words, Jesus is saying, my prayer will cause these things to happen. Well, when is he going to pray that prayer? He's praying it now. Because there's only one way that you and I are born again through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is the work of the Holy Ghost that takes place because we choose to receive. He's praying that prayer now. He's praying now that the Comforter will come and it will abide with you forever. That's what John 17 is about. Keep them through thy name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition. The word but is not except. He's not saying I only lost one, but one out of twelve is not too bad. No, he's saying Scripture had to be fulfilled, and that's the only reason this one was lost, because of the fulfillment of Scripture. All those that that thou hast given me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition that the Scripture might be fulfilled. You know what's interesting, folks, is that that, um, Judas started off in the same place as Peter and John and the others. Judas started off just as convinced that Jesus had the words of life as Peter and John were. Judas was just as convinced by the miracles of who Jesus was than any of the others. But he began to dwell on the wrong things. He began to dwell on the wrong things. He began to think too much of himself. He began to let other things creep into his, uh, and and change his relationship with Jesus. One of the most astounding things about the Last Supper is that everybody was amazed that one of them would betray him. It's not, I mean, we read the, the Gospels, we know the end result, and so we think, oh, yeah, they should have seen that. There's Judas stealing. That, well, when Judas said that about Mary and the box that cost a lot and stuff, surely they should have known then. What's the matter with these guys? But everybody was amazed, and even Judas asked, Lord, is it me? So he said, none of them is lost but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. This ends this prayer, or ends, I'm sorry, it ends the presentation that he makes before the Father. The only thing that he's asked for so far is verse 11, keep them by making them one with us. Now verse 13, here's the prayer. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now folks, I want you to realize something. 
Jesus has already said, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for them. He's going to say in a few, in, in a verse or two, he's going to say, I'm not praying that, I'm, that you'll take them out of the world. It's better for them to stay. But notice what God's intent for you staying here on the earth is. That you live your days here on the earth with fullness of joy. Let me make this a little bit more clear if I can. God wants you to be happy here. He doesn't want you to be part of the world. Which means real happiness is not being joined to the world. Well, what is real happiness? Well, what did Jesus say about your joy? He said, uh, uh, these things I've spoken to you that your joy might be fulfilled. He's saying that he wants his joy fulfilled in them. He said, ask that you might receive that your joy might be full. He wants your prayer life to be the same as his prayer life because you're one with the, the Father, just like he was one with the Father. He wants your joy to be full here on the earth because you have the same authority here on the earth that he had here on the earth. He's going to talk about giving you his glory. He wants your joy to be fulfilled through fellowship with the Father, just as his joy was fulfilled through fellowship with the Father. Saddest thing in the world is people that are chasing the world trying to get happy. Because it ain't there. I know that's not good English, but you get the point. These things have I spoken. These things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word. And the world hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Do you know that you are... Just as much not of this world as Jesus was not of this world. You weren't born of a virgin, but you're just as much not of this world as him. I pray not that thou should take them out of the world, but that thou should keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He seems to be stuck on that, doesn't he? Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Now that point right there, justice could very well stand up and demand, wait a minute, that's not right, this can't be possible. You can't send them into the world like Jesus was sent into the world. Jesus was the righteous one, born of a virgin. There was no sin nature in his flesh. There was no experience of sin in his life in any way. Therefore, he was qualified to be sent into the world, but they're not. But notice what Jesus just said in verse 17. Jesus said, I want their joy to be fulfilled. That can only happen through fellowship with the Father, just like I fellowship with you. And then he said, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. Now, folks, I want you to recognize something. Sanctification is a, is a subject that the church world has been fighting over ever since Jesus spoke. It's kind of like water baptism. Sanctification means a lot of things to a lot of different people. The, the simplest definition of sanctification just means to separate. To separate or to set apart. When the elements of the temple in the Old Testament were sanctified, what that means is they were set apart for specific use. These were elements. They may have been cups and saucers and different things like that, that, that the same elements and same dishes and so forth that people have in their homes, but they were set apart for a specific use related to God, which made this, the, the act of setting apart made them holy. There's nothing holy about a dish. Nothing holy about the, the elements of the table of showbread and the tabernacle or anything else. There wasn't anything holy in and of the, themselves. What made them holy is they were set apart for God's use. So Jesus is saying, sanctify them. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought they were kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5, we referred to that a minute ago. I just quoted it. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. That word kept means to mount guard as, a, as with a garrison of soldiers. That's what your salvation does for you. It mounts guard over you in such a way that the devil can't have access. To mount guard as with a garrison of soldiers. But I thought Jesus just prayed that through his glorification, they would be one with the Father. That can only happen through the new birth. That can only happen through making Jesus the Lord of your life. So why is he talking about now sanctifying them? Does the new birth not sanctify you? 
That's why he keeps saying they're not of this world, even as I'm not of this world. Because there's a difference between the relationship that comes through the new birth and the fellowship that comes through walking in the word. Every person saved has been set apart or made holy or made righteous by the blood of Jesus. But that doesn't mean their joy is going to be full. The only thing that can fulfill your joy here on the earth is fellowship with God. And the only way you can fellowship with him is to set yourself apart from the world. And the way that you can do that, the only way you can set yourself apart from the world, the world is through the word of God. So the word is the only, only avenue to joy. Which means, and notice what he says in verse 17, sanctify or set apart. Set them apart through thy word. Thy word is truth. Notice it doesn't say the word contains truth. It says the word is truth. So if the word, the truth, is the only way to have your joy fulfilled by being set apart from the world, then that means the absence of truth or error will cause you to be joined to the world. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Let me read something to you here from John's, uh, John's letter to the church. First John chapter one. Verse three he says that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things, verse four. Uh, that was first John verse chapter one, verse three. This is verse four. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. I guess John paid attention when Jesus prayed. Because what does he know? He's figured it out. He's saying the only way your joy can be full is through the word, which brings you into fellowship with the father and his son, Jesus Christ. That's the only way. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. As I said, justice could say, wait a minute. Not right, not fair. No justification for this. They're not worthy. Verse 19, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself. What's he talking about? He's talking about being set apart through the cross. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because the word said he had to. Because it was a fulfillment of truth. Why didn't God answer his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, which he's going to pray in just a little while? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Because the cross was the fulfillment of the word. You can't alter the truth, folks. No matter how much you want to. No matter how much you would prefer to do it another way, you can't alter the truth. So Jesus says, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself. That they also might be sanctified through the truth. Verse 20 starts his prayer for others, not just those that believed on him that were on the earth at that time. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Now, folks, I would submit to you that everybody that's been born again from the time of Jesus' resurrection forward have been born again through the word of the apostles. At least those, uh, uh, I guess the exception to those would be the ones that uh, Jesus appeared to. It says in one case that he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. The language seems to suggest that it was a crowd of more than 500 people that saw Jesus alive. Not 500 people total that, that saw him for those 30 or 40 days. So I guess the only exception to everybody in the body of Christ that were born again through the, the word of the disciples the, that became the apostles would be those that saw Jesus raised from the dead themselves. But certainly it includes all of us. So who's he praying for? He's praying for us. So pay particular attention to what he's praying for for you because this is an eternal prayer. This is a one-time prayer. He's not sitting at the Father at the Father's right hand having to pray this over and over and over again, praying it for somebody every time somebody new gets born again. This was a one-time high priest prayer. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. 
Notice the key is believe on him. Folks, I want you to understand that identification. Jesus is identifying himself with the, with the, the disciples, with the eleven. When he talks about I've manifested thy name to them, not just the eleven, but the others that were followers when he was here on the earth. He said, I've kept them through thy word. He's talking about the eleven. He's talking about I've, I've uh, declared them. I've glorified you here on the earth before them. All this stuff was before the eleven. All this stuff that he did was a part of the presentation for them to have access to the eternal life that he's going to bring through his resurrection. Now he says, I'm praying for also for those which shall believe on me through their word. What was it that qualified the 11 as well as everybody else that, w- that was part of his company? What was it that qualified them for the glory of the resurrection that Jesus has yet to come at the point in time that he's praying? They believed. What did they believe? They believed that God had sent him. That's what he keeps mentioning again and again. They believed that I came from you. Right? Now notice what the identification is for us. Those that believe on him through their word. The word of the apostles. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through thy word, through their word. Faith is the identifier. Faith is the only thing that Jesus speaks of and uh, as a qualifier or as an identifier, the mark of those that belong to him. Faith is the only thing. Simple faith. Choosing to believe. Verse 21. What are you praying for us for, Jesus? What is it you want us to have? That they all may be one. As thou, Father, in me, art in me, the King James has that in italics, says, Thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us for this purpose. He's praying that we would be one with him, just like he's one with the Father, that God the Father and Jesus the Son would be in us, just like God the Father was in Jesus the Son, for this purpose, that the world also may believe that thou hast sent me. Now, please notice what he's not praying. He's not praying, I'm I'm praying for these that shall believe on me through the the uh, words of the apostles, so that the world may come to believe in me too. That's not his prayer. Notice the distinction Jesus makes between this world and they which are not a part of this world. Again, on the cross, he cares for the world. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But as our high priest, he's not praying for the world. He's not the high priest to the world. He's the high priest to the believers. And his concern, his prayer is that the Father would be one with us so that the world would know that God sent him. Now let's take a little detour or pause here for just a moment. I know we're out of time. We'll cover the rest of this pretty quick. Let me ask you something. What's going to cause the world to know that God sent Jesus? What did Jesus use as evidence that God sent him. Now, we can get real religious here, and we can say, well, it's the love of God that will prove it. That's great. I'm all for the love of God. Jesus is going to close this up with talking about the love of God. But it wasn't the love of God per se, not the way that the modern-day church thinks of love, that caused the world to know that he was sent from the Father. But they did know when he showed authority. That's when they backed up and said, whoa, how'd you get that? Where'd that come from? When he exercised authority and did signs and wonders and miracles to heal the sick and cast out devils and so forth, that's when everybody stopped and said, well, what are we going to say about this? Even when he did it on the Sabbath day and, and, and broke what they thought was the law of Moses. It wasn't a violation of the law of Moses. But every time Jesus did something, every time Jesus did a work, that's where the Jews stepped in and said, wait a minute, you can't do this. But the rest of the people said, did you see that? Okay, back to verse 21. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Why would God expect Jesus 
to use different things to prove that God the Father sent him than he would expect us to use to prove that God sent Jesus whom we preach. That doesn't make sense, does it? Verse 22, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Can I ask you what glory that is? What glory is that? Remember, he's not praying this for the 11. If he's praying this for the 11, then we might say that Jesus' prayer is something along this line. And Father, the authority that I've given them over sickness and disease and to cast out devils, let them keep using that. But he's praying for people that have never been given that authority. He's praying for people that aren't yet born. So what glory is he talking about? Notice he says, in the glory which thou gavest me. He's speaking to the, the resurrection glory that he knows God has already heard and answered his prayer about. We don't have the, the authority that Jesus gave the disciples here on the earth. We have the authority that belongs to us in the name of Jesus who conquered death. They were operating on the authority that Jesus had as a righteous man here on the earth, a righteous man as far as keeping the law of Moses. That's not the authority we have. We've got the authority in the name of Jesus. The authority that belongs to us because Jesus is risen and has conquered the grave. Right? Verse 22, and the glory which thou gavest me. Please notice how Jesus prayed. Father, glorify me so that I can glorify you. Okay, that prayer's been prayed. That's already done. Now we're later on in the prayer. And the glory which you gave me, which I asked you for earlier, I know you heard me. Give that to them. There is a, um, there's a, a passage of Scripture. It's in Matthew. Well, Matthew and Luke where it says, uh, which some people have used to, uh, to try to discredit the, uh, the notion of uh, or the idea of the prayer of faith. Because it says, uh, ask and you shall receive, knock and it shall be opened, and, and so forth. I, I just messed it up. But anyway, you know the passage I'm talking about. The word ask there is a continuous action verb. Ask and keep on asking. And some people take that and they say, well, this idea, this notion of the prayer of faith, you pray one time and say, I believe I receive it and that's it. That's not accurate. That's not appropriate. And I'll be the first to admit that not every prayer should be prayed the, with the as the prayer of faith. Every prayer should be prayed in faith. But when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's consecrating himself to the Lord. He's not praying the prayer of faith. And it says he prayed three times. Lord, let this cup pass from me. Well, that's obviously not the prayer of faith then, is it? The prayer of faith believes it receives when it prays and moves on. Jesus is praying the prayer of faith as our high priest in John chapter 17. There are some things you ask for and keep on asking. Most of those situations are, are really fall into the category of supplication rather than prayer. Not that supplication is not a kind of prayer, but you know what I mean. It's, it's a specific type of prayer. When you're praying about the will of God in your life, trying to ascertain the will of God in your life, you're making supplication for God to reveal his will to you. And that's something you can pray over and over and over again and should. But Jesus is praying the prayer of faith. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one. Notice it's resurrection glory that they may be one even as we are one. Folks, please notice there is no difference between you being one with the Father and Jesus being one with the Father. None. Even as means the same in type, the same in kind, the same in character. Even as. We are one. No difference. Not second generation. Not kind of sort of like. They may be one even as we are one. In the same manner. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Perfect means complete. Nothing left out. And that the world may know that, two things, thou hast sent me. That is big in Jesus' mind. 
as the high priest, Jesus wants the world to know God sent him. That is more prevalent in the high priestly ministry of Jesus than for the world to believe in him. Now, you can well understand why if you stop and think about it for a second. If you believe that God sent him, it makes it easy to believe in him. And if you don't believe God sent him, it doesn't matter if you believe in him. Because you'd believe, be believing in the wrong thing. You see my point? So with Jesus, it's over and over and over again that the world may know that you have sent me. Folks, there's a, I hesitate to get into this, especially with time going away from us. But what the heck? Jesus makes a very distinct, very, very clear distinction between the family of God, those who believe in him and the world. You need to realize even as we even as we saw in, in Jesus' uh, earlier comments in a few weeks past, where he talked about the Holy Ghost being the witness of judgment upon the earth. He's proof that Jesus is righteous. He's proof that Jesus uh, came from the Father, and he's proof of the judgment of the world. There are two very distinct families here on the earth. There is the family of the devil, and there is the family of God. The family of God is one with the Father, and judgment belongs to everybody else. Now, the reason I bring that up is very simply this. I know a lot of Christians have a hard time keeping themselves unspotted from the world. I know a lot of Christians um, have allowed other things of this earth to, gab- to grab their affections rather than, than the things of God. It's an easy thing for us to do. We've all been there, right? But if you look at things with the hard lines that the the Bible identifies things to be, it makes it easier not to cross that line. See, you draw a line in pencil, it's kind of easy to move over that. You draw that line with a bold magic marker, which is what Jesus is doing here. It makes it harder to cross. It makes you stop and think carefully before you do step over that line. When we choose to sin, and every sin is a choice. When we choose to sin, we are choosing to partake of the activities that bring judgment upon the earth. Even though that's not a, that's not the family we're a part of. Even though we have nothing to do with them, we're not of the world, we're choosing to act like them. We're choosing to act like those worthy of judgment. Think about that the next time you're tempted. I and them, verse 23 again, I and them and thou and me, that they may be perfect in one, complete in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me. Number one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me. Number two, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Just as he said, we're, our oneness with the Father is the same oneness that Jesus had with the Father. He's saying the love that God has for us is the same love that God had for him. Now, in that context, notice verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. Now, where I am doesn't mean getting ready to go to the cross. Where I am does not mean one with the Father, the oneness he had with the Father before he went to the cross and was raised from the dead. The where I am, he again is jumping forward to the resurrection. He's counting himself as already raised from the dead. Oh, yeah, you've got that uh, that little thing like the, the punishment in Pilate's court, taking stripes on your back, and that, crucifixion thing and then those three days in the belly of the earth where you're going to bear the the punishment of a righteous god who hates sin but outside of that he counts himself as raised from the dead already why what am i saying am i saying the cross didn't matter to him am i saying the 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 
the penalty and the judgment and the wrath of God that he's going to face in three days between the, cross, between the grave and uh, the, the resurrection? Did that not matter to him? Well, clearly it mattered to him because he goes to Gethsemane just immediately thereafter and sweats great drops of blood over the situation that he's facing. Well, then how could he so casually look over that punishment, that terrible wrath of God that's going to be poured out upon him? Because he's operating as our high priest. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he wasn't operating as our high priest. He was operating as the lamb being taken to the slaughter. But here in John 17, this is the high priestly ministry. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. That means at the right hand of the Father. Doesn't the Bible say we were raised when he was raised? This prayer must have worked then. that they may behold my glory. What are we supposed to see? What's the benefit of us being raised to the right hand of the Father and seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus? That we may behold his glory. What glory? The glory he had here on the earth where he healed sickness and disease? No. The glory which thou hast given me for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. He's talking about the glory that he had before the foundation of the world plus the glory he got as the conqueror who earned a name that's above every name. And what I want you to see is, here's why Jesus had the glory. The Bible says Jesus is coming back for a glorious church. The Bible says we have the same glory of God within us. Christ in us is the hope of glory. Not glory to come, glory now. And remember all these things he's saying is so that our joy may be fulfilled as we walk separate from the world through the word of God. Notice why Jesus had the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. Because God loved him. Well, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus just pray something about the love of God for us too? You know what's the hardest thing for, for, uh, for mankind to accept, in my opinion? That God wants to glorify you so that you can glorify him. And the Bible says that Jesus was glorified. The reason he had the glory that he had was because God loved him. We get this thing and the devil beats us up with this day after day, month after month, year after year. That you're nothing. You'll never be anything. You're nothing today. You're nothing. You'll be nothing forever. Yet the Bible says that God wants to glorify you for one purpose, and that is so that you can bring glory to the Father so that the world will know that God sent Jesus and that God, the world will know that God loves you just like he loved Jesus. Now, we've got an example before Jesus of what that looked like. Can you say Abraham? Things worked for Abraham so that other kings took notice. God wants to glorify you, folks. He wants you to behold, experience his glory here on the earth. That doesn't mean he wants you to lord it over other people. He doesn't. But you don't have to lord it over other people. You don't have to dominate and crush other people in order to operate in the glory of God. In fact, the glory of God will cause you to lift other people. Father, I will that thou also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Verse 25. O righteous Father, the world has not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. He's back to talking about his disciples, both present tense in his day and future tense, you included. These have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it to this end, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. Notice the last thing that Jesus says, the last word that he concludes with in this has to do with the love of God. I will declare your name, Father, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them. And I in them too. 
You know what would change our lives? To come to realize what God's love really means in us. I'm not talking about the love of God shown from us to other people. That's great. We need to operate in that. We need to develop that. The Bible tells us how to do that. It tells us what the characteristics of the love of God expressed toward other people is supposed to look like. And that's great. That's that's first and foremost. The Bible says the world will know us by our love. No question about it. But what I'm talking about is to understand how much God loves us. That I'll be honest with you. That's something I struggled with all my life. That's probably the greatest struggle I have as a Christian. Certainly the greatest struggle I have as a minister. No question about it. And I look at people that have done exploits for God. I look at people that do signs and wonders and God uses in miraculous ways and stuff. They all understood how much God loved them. And so I focus in and say, oh, okay, let me figure this out. Let me get there. Let me. Hey, it doesn't come overnight. I can tell you that. At least it hadn't come in any of my overnights. You find somebody that knows how much God loves them. There is no obstacle for them. That's what caused Jesus to conquer anything and everything he came up on. He knew God loved him. And because God loved him, because he knew his interests were the same as the father's interests, there's nothing God wouldn't give him. And that's Jesus' last prayer. The last part of his prayer. That the love wherewith thou lovest me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Open our eyes to the truth, Father. Show us that love wherewith you love Jesus. Reveal to us, Father, what it means for us to be one with you even as Jesus was one with you. Show us, Father, what it means that you love us just as you love Jesus. We ask you in the precious and holy name that's above every name. Father, we ask you even as Jesus did, to glorify us that we may glorify you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.